Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Matt Chanoff. Matt is a San Francisco-based angel investor who's worked with more than 30 early stage companies, helping them design business models and strategies and develop marketing and implementation strategies. He's drafted more than 40 business plans, which have been used to raise over $50 million. In 2011, he co-founded Flashpoint, a deliberate innovation studio to develop leaders and exceptional technology startups. He's the co-author of The Heart of Innovation, which published in November of 2023. Thanks so much for being here today, Matt. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about innovation, which is, and I love innovation. Um, I think uh, curiosity has an awful lot to do with that. But I am mm-hmm. curious about why so many innovations fail. Can you shed some light on that? Well, yeah, that's sort of the focus of our interest. And it goes back uh, decades. I started doing those, writing those business plans for companies in the 1990s. And um, surprisingly, most of those companies fail, even though I certainly drank the Kool-Aid and saw what the value was. Um, But what we ultimately, me and my partner, Merrick First, ultimately uh, kind of came to understand was there was sort of an elephant in the room that wasn't being wasn't being recognized. Um, you know, companies thought about creating the technology that they would that uh, would do whatever it was that they were planning to do. They thought about they thought about uh, their business model. They thought about marketing. They thought about people, but they really didn't think about authentic demand. And authentic demand is a phrase we came up with, which um, uh, really try as a in the process of trying to delve into what is demand really? What is it that's what? What's the difference between um, a kind of demand that you can rely on as a new business and as an innovator versus the sort of thing that uh, you know people might want to buy? It might happen to buy something, or they might happen to not buy it which, which uh, you know, adds up to indifference. And you can't build a successful business on customer indifference. So, okay, so, so this is interesting to me. So talk to me more about authentic demand. What, it sounds to me like that is, um, that the, there are people who really truly are looking for whatever that's the solution is. Is, is that it? I, I wouldn't put it that way. Okay. Um, I think that you know there are people who want things. There are even people who need things. Um, but 
Those, those wants and needs are contingent. Uh, think of all the things that you want that you never buy. Uh, even if you think you need something, it's generally in a certain context. So we started focusing on really what, what is the context. And um, here, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of, of the sort of thing where I see authentic demand um, showing up. Okay, great. Imagine, imagine you have somebody who's uh, very ambitious, hardworking, long hours at work, uh, and they're also a, a committed parent and very important to them to be a good parent to their kids. And what they're finding is they're getting home late and they're exhausted and they're snapping at the kids and not paying attention to them. So that's, a, that's kind of a cliche, and you'd have to really look into it to see if there were people like that. But, but if you have a person like that, then that person has a conflict between two commitments they have about their identity, about the kind of person that they think they ought to be, that they're trying to be, that they want to be. And those two things are in conflict. If you can notice that, really find people, a market of people like that, then you can start thinking about what's an innovation that might help them resolve that conflict. And you have to be curious and creative to figure out what that innovation might be. It could be a, a you know, a, a, a driver service with classical music that takes them home from work. It could be a, a gym that they could stop at to work off some of the excess energy before they get home. Who knows what it could be? That's really up to the innovator. But once you understand those people and that conflict, then you have sort of a compass of, okay, where is my innovation? How is my innovation going to meet something that's non-indifferent, that it will matter to people and they will respond to it? And if you find that right thing, boy, you know, you can't, you got to keep stocking the shelves. Uh, and if you don't, you know, if you depend on marketing or some idea about what people are like, chances are it's not going to succeed. I see. Uh, okay. Um, it's really interesting. I get it. it. It makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm, I'm glad I asked the question. So um, you say there are three types of innovation. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, so we've seen, you know, when we wrote this book, my my partner Merrick and I were uh, have worked together for quite a long time. We started this thing together in 2011, but we worked together before that, starting a couple of companies. Um, and but we we're focused on startups, on early stage companies. But when COVID came around, we sort of got into the habit of talking with a couple of old friends of his who were. Um, you know, major leaders at IBM, and they got interested. That's Danny Sabah and and um, uh, that's Danny Sabah and um, and Mark Wegman. And uh, what they were interested in these same issues from a large company, large enterprise perspective, and we didn't, it, we hadn't really thought about it so much in those in that context. Uh, but they had, and they and we were sort of putting words and concepts to things that they had felt and seen in their careers. So what what we kind of came together to notice 
is that you can really think of innovation in three categories, in three ways. And each one has its own, um, own particular challenges. And we called them transformative, informative, and simply formative. Um, informative is, you can think of, imagine you have a bucket and you're filling that, your company is your bucket. It has all sorts of assets and it's full of them. And what you're doing with your R&D is filling that bucket further. You're adding more innovative products or technologies or assets of one kind or another to, uh, to meet the market, to uh, expand your, your influence in market share or, or areas and so on, port part, product portfolio. But you already know where that authentic demand is. You understand the customers. You're just, you're just watching them evolve and you're evolving the technologies and so on to meet them. Um, what happens with that is kind of an S-curve is ultimately those technologies and things, the more, you, the more uh, effort and money you put into it, the less you get out of it. Um, because competitors catch up, because, because technologies mature, all these sorts of things. And what you need then is a new bucket. You need to expand your bucket in some way. You need to change what it is you're looking at. And people usually think about that as changing their uh, sort of the premises of the, of the business. So an obvious example is, you know, suppose you were a, a, um, a railroad and you knew all about the, how railroads worked and how to sell to people who carried stuff on railroads and so on. And as long as you're, when you're in the informative area, you're, you're adding things like more efficient diesel engines or refrigerator cars, or perhaps we'll, we'll put a spur to a new city, things like that. Um, when that becomes kind of mature and you can't do better than that, you start thinking about transforming it. And you think, oh, well, maybe instead of just thinking of ourselves as a railroad, we can think of ourselves as a transportation company. And then we can expand into shipping or, or to air freight or something like that. And, that, and from the C-suite, that looks like a great idea because you're suddenly opening things up to a lot, a lot of new customers, a lot of uh, ways to approach problems and so on. But that sort of transformation, that's the second type of innovation, is transformative. And that sort of, in, of innovation is really, really difficult. And the reason it's difficult, or one of the key reasons that's least understood is the immunities to change that you find up and down your organization when you try to do this in just so many little ways you know the person who sells the uh, the insurance on these um on on the freight that's being carried doesn't know how to sell insurance for uh air freight or guarantees of when things cut, when things are going to show up are different for uh, when a railroad shows up versus a ship where there might be a storm and the ship is stuck in port or something like that. And just sort of up and down the organization, every there are all these people who were committed to doing their job and now their job has unknown aspects to it and they resist it. 
you know, often in very, very uh, passive, even unconscious ways. But but you see that sort of gumming up the works with with uh, mergers and acquisitions all the time. And I think it accounts for a lot of the failures of M&A. Um, so that's that's kind of the key problem with the with the second form of innovation, the transformative. What we're talking about and what we really focus on in the book is this third one, which we simply call formative. And that's the question of how do you um, start something new? What, what was it that made that railroad a successful business in the first place? Then um, there's a great example with railroads in the 19th century is uh, when telegraphs started showing up. Uh, the companies that had that were trying to provide this needed rights of way, physical places where they could put the their um, their wires, and they saw that the railroads already had these between cities. They had bought the rights of way to put their rails down, so they started making deals with. So they went to the railroad companies and said, "Can we lease the space to put uh, put uh, telephone telegraph poles and wires along it?" And it became a whole new business line for the railroads. They would never have thought of, mm. it, it wasn't a matter of transforming things, of, of rethinking how the, how the railroad worked. It was a matter of seeing where, what their right of way, and now you can think of right of way in a more metaphorical sense, not just a physical right of way. How could big company use their right of way to create something new? Something absolutely new, like a, like a, a you know a leasing business for the telegraph wires. Uh, so that formative area is the area that we focused on because it was super important. It's kind of the key thing for innovative startups, but it also turned out to be very important where um, where uh, large enterprises are interested in in entering new areas. Um, so we learned a lot from Danny Saba, who was very successful at IBM in creating their WebSphere business, which was IBM's entry into the internet era. He started a business from scratch that was uh, it's now an $8 billion business um, within IBM. But he uh, saw it, but in retrospect, he sees that as a transformative business. And he kind of lived through all the fighting and extra costs and problems that comes with those uh, immunities to change. But when he was tasked with a new business, a cloud business for IBM, it did not succeed nearly as well. And he sees that now because that was essentially a formative business. It didn't have the same customers. It didn't have the same business models at all uh, uh, as, as the older IBM businesses. And by not understanding that and not having the tools for formative change, he, uh, I wouldn't say failed, but he did not do nearly as well as they had done with this previous one. So that's why we try to get people, especially people with existing businesses, to try to understand, try to fit what they're trying to do or what they feel like they need to do into one of these three categories so they can think about the kind of issues that are uh, the particular challenges, whether it's the technical challenges and teamwork and so on, getting the right people that is involved with the R&D for, uh, for informative innovation 
or whether it's the psychological acuteness and managing people and avoiding immunities to change that's important, that are important, mostly important for the transformative world, or whether it's the kind of tools that you need that we've been working on to figure out really new formative innovation. Do you think, well, I'm not really sure how to ask this question. Um, do all companies go through periods where they experience each one of these sorts of innovation or can a company just, you know, be involved in one of them? I mean, is it sort of a, a life cycle sort of yeah. thing or what? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, you know, with so many companies and so many different ways to go about it. I don't want to try to say this sure. is a, you know, a, a um, you know, theory of the entire world. Mm -hmm. But virtually all companies, when they are new, it's very hard to start a new company doing the exact same thing in a market that's already people are already there. You're just at a strong disadvantage yeah. uh, against people who have brand money and brand brand and resources and so forth. So as a result, the the new startups, or at least the kinds of startups that we tend to talk about when we talk about Silicon Valley, are almost always formative innovations, the ones that succeed. Mm. Um, transformative Sometimes, you know, I think that as a general rule, like I said, there's an S curve that that at first, once you have that formative, successful innovation, you put you put money in, you put resources and people in and the company grows, the business grows. But ultimately, at some point, that business, uh, that that curve flattens out and the more you put in you know, you're getting relatively less out of it. And at that point, there tends to be pressure to look for a transformative answer. Sometimes sometimes that's resisted. Sometimes they can't think of a good one. When they do that, it very often fails. And that's a big consideration. Um, the the uh, third category, I think the formative, I think, as I said, it sort of almost always is present at the beginning. And I think it's a much harder thing for mature companies to create, uh, uh, to, to structure their assets so that they can continue with formative change. Um, it's just a tough thing to do because very often things start little, you know, and if you're, if you're, uh, you know, in charge of a budget and and at a large company, and uh, the 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 um, CFO will tell you, oh well, you know, you can do this if you can promise me that in three years it'll be a hundred million dollar business. <laughs> well, you can't do that with right. change. So that's the kind of thing where you might have a champion and then they, you know, move to another job or move somewhere else in the company. And then without a champion, the thing dies off. Um, it needs to be, you know, pretty isolated, like a skunk works kind of thing. But it's but it also needs to do that 
you know, the, to go back to the answer I gave you earlier about the the person who's a, um, you know, a, a hardworking, ambitious person and also a committed a committed parent. I mean, that's a nice illustration of the idea, but in fact, understanding customers have to go way, way, way deeper than that. And that's a process that's just so um, vulnerable to biases and, and kind of seeing it through the lens of your existing business and so on, that uh, that you really need um, a set of new tools and you need the patience and long-term support of of whoever's you know signing off on your budget and and your org chart and so forth and and it's a very tough thing for large companies to do so do you think it's easier like all of this is easier for small businesses are they are they more nimble well startups have a startups don't have many of those problems but they also don't have many rights of way right yeah you can't sort of look into your into your asset base and say oh yeah we have these um th these uh, uh you know railroads lines of way but i'll say that it does show up somewhere else i mean when we merrick came up with that analogy about the railroads merrick is my my partner uh, but when he came up with it, I realized that this is something that happened exactly with my father when I was a uh, was a kid. I worked for him as a teenager, and he had a small strip mall outside of Philadelphia. And he did whatever he could to improve the the that business. He he you know got good anchor tenants, and he fixed up the building, and he did whatever he could to make that business as good as possible. Um, and then one day, some stranger showed up and said, uh, you know, your roof is very, it's on a hill. It's in an area where there are not many of these. How about if I put a, a cell phone uh, tower on top of that? I'll, I'll pay you a little bit for it. Mm. And that would never in a million years have occurred to him. He was a real estate guy. Yeah. Uh, but, you know. A year or two later, there were a bunch of satellite dishes up on the roof. He, he sold it like crazy. Um, so, you know, so it's not something that only happens if you're, a, you know, some a railroad with some giant asset that can be repurposed. You can just have a roof. But it but it takes a lot of creativity. And the, the thing about those two examples is they're both examples of the innovation coming from outside right yeah somebody who showed up uh and the trick is how do you do these things from the inside and that's that's what we've been working on i say yeah that i'm so glad that you just said that because i was thinking about that those two examples were someone coming to the company and saying what about this instead of from the inside you know being able to look and mm -hmm. you know get creative with with ideas yeah, because I think when you get, in order to do it from the inside, you have to start understanding your customers or the people that you want to serve um, from the beginning. And it's very hard to start at the beginning. It's very hard to avoid starting, you know, with all of your prejudices and assumptions and stereotypes intact. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that that's... 
that's something that's just very hard to do and that we work hard to and have developed uh, particular methodologies to to deal with. Yeah, I, uh, I get that. I, I can certainly see that. Th- this is so um, interesting. And, and I so and I know that you have met you, probably hundreds of businesses over the years that, that are really looking to grow and, and do great things. Um, it, I, and I'm sure we have people listening who are in the same place. What is like one piece of advice you would share with them? Um, yeah, it's always hard to give one piece of advice <laughs> I know. because it's sort of, I mean, I think you really need to figure out a method, but, um, here, I'll use it. There's a, a phrase in an earlier life, way before I got involved in businesses. I was a, um, I worked at a publisher and uh, we published this uh, guy, a theologian by the name of uh, Fred Beekner. And Fred, um, Fred wrote something and, you know, it's a, it's a religious text, but if you strip it of religion, I think it, it, says something that's super important for um, for innovators. And what he said was that, that the place God calls you is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. And I love that phrase. And I think yeah. that innovators start to spend, spend too much time thinking about or paying attention to consciously or unconsciously their deep gladness, the thing that matters to them, and not the world's deep hunger. And our whole idea of authentic demand and understanding how people uh, have authentic demand or how they're, uh, you know, otherwise they're indifferent to it, that's that's kind of encapsulated in that idea of deep hunger. What's somebody's deep hunger for something? And you know, people have commitments in life. They have they have lifetime commitments about their you know their ethics or their family or so forth. And they have you know medium term commitments. While I'm a student, I have to do the things to be a student. While I'm in this job, I have to do the things to be in this job. And they have short term commitments, like you know, I'm I'm doing the. Uh, I'm putting on the block party for uh, Christmas this year. And when people are re- have really have commitments, then looking for the things that stop them from, from acting you know, on, on those commitments and then trying to relieve them of those things, that's, that is where you find their deep hunger. Because their deep hunger is where you can't, where they can't be who they want to be, who they're, who they intend to be, who they mean to be, in terms of the long-term commitment or short-term or medium one, they can't be what they want to be. And you've got to recognize that people are experts in their own lives. They're extremely good at this, at living their lives and meeting their commitments. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they are. They wouldn't be have a roof over their heads. They wouldn't have a bit job. They wouldn't have be in that school. Mm. But but nevertheless, they're very frequently for all sorts of reasons, um, 
running into things that stop them from meeting those commitments. And it could be a conflict, like the example I gave before. It could be a some kind of demographic change. It could be, you know, the economy changing in one way or another. All sorts of reasons kind of get in the way of people. But when they do, and when they really have that commitment, if they don't have the commitment, they'll just change it. Okay, I'm not a student anymore. Uh, I can't see very well, so I'll stop driving. They're indifferent, they're indifferent. Uh, but if they're not indifferent, if they're committed to that thing, then helping them achieve that, that's where you'll find authentic demand. That's so great. Thank you for that. That is really, I, I love that quote too that you shared and that really brings this all together in a way that is enlightening and and so understandable. Uh, Matt, I, I appreciate the conversation. Um, I, I think, you know, the work that you're doing is so interesting and valuable. Uh, will you tell the listeners, you know, how they can find you, how they can find the book? Yeah, so the, the book is called The Heart of Innovation, and you can find it on Amazon. Uh, and we have a website, theheartofinnovation.com, and we have some additional you know, blog posts and so on there. Um, and uh, your listeners are you know, highly encouraged. If you look at the book, the book is kind of developed in two sides. The first half is accidental innovation, where people have found authentic demand without knowing that was precisely what they were looking for and have failed to find it. So there's a bunch of case studies in there. And then the second half is deliberate innovation, how people have, how you can kind of follow a process to find those authentic demands that are hidden hidden in, uh, in your customers. So I hope people will take a look at it. Oh, gosh, I'm sure they will. It's it's really, it's terrific. So uh, again, thank you for spending this time with us and sharing this information. And listeners, thank you. You are who we're doing this for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.